Section 3 of the Complete Works of Tacitus, edited by Thomas Gordon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by J.C. Guan. The Complete Works of Tacitus, to which are prefixed political discourses upon that author. Edited and translated by Thomas Gordon with introductory essays by Thomas Gordon. Volume 1. Discourse 2. Upon Tacitus and his writings. Part 2. Section 8. More proofs of the candor and veracity of Tacitus. Tacitus makes Tiberius no worse than he was, hardly so bad, that he doomed almost his whole family to exile, famine, or the executioner, that his cruel suspicion and distrust extended even to women, even to his mother, nay to children, relations and strangers, to names, nobility, and all men, is undeniable. Nor does Tacitus relate any part of the conduct or politics of Tiberius. But what evidently results either from the nature of the man or the nature of his power? He frequently speaks well of that prince, and ill he could not avoid speaking, if he spoke of him at all. Nay, the whole sixth chapter of the fourth annal is a fine panegyric, upon the moderation and wisdom of his government for eight years before. Publica negotia, e privatum maxima, apud patres tractabantur, dabaturque primoribus diserere, e in adulationem lapsus coibebat ipse, mandabacque honores, nobilitatem maiorum, claritudinem militiae, in lustres domi artes spectando, ut satis constaret non alios posiores fuise, sua consulibus, sua rhetoribus species, minorum quoque magistratum exercita potestas, legesque, si majestatis questio eximeretur bono in usu, etc. What can be fairer than this? And do not other historians agree that he grew worse and worse, that he had long smothered his vices, and was, first and last, a complete dissembler? And is it just upon Tacitus to accuse him of displaying the subtleties and craft of a prince, who was all craft and subtlety, does he not give us the good and bad of his character, and frequently defend it? Does he not say of him, in opposition to popular opinion, and report, Non crediterim ad ostentandam seviciam, movendasque populi offensiones concesam filio materiam, quanquam i quoque dictum est? A.N. 1, C. 76 does he not represent Tiberius elsewhere as mollifying a rigorous sentence of the Senate for banishing a criminal to a barren and desolate island, and arguing that to whomsoever they granted life, they ought to grant the conveniences of life? Dandus vitae usus, cui vita consideretur? Does he not represent him in another place absolutely refusing a new accession of power, and arguing against it, like a republican, yet charges him there with no dissimulation, 
in Tacitus you have no false colouring, no true words blemished, no bad qualities disguised, but fair representations and equal justice. Tiberius is a dangerous prince, extremely false, extremely cruel, but he has many abilities and some good qualities. He is prudent in moderating the excesses of others, where he was not instigated by his own personal anger. Prudence moderanti ubi propria ira non impereretur. He loved power without bounds, yet was constant and resolute in rejecting pompous honours. Spernendis honoribus validus. A great tyrant, but a prince observing the rules of primitive parsimony. Antique parsimonie princeps. Furiously jealous of prerogative, yet the laws where processes of treason interfered not, where in proper force, Leges si majestatis, questio eximeretur, bono in usu. He is inflexible in his vengeance, and wherever his jealousy or anger centres, there terrible tragedies are sure to follow. Yet the popular imputation of his poisoning his son is by Tacitus exposed as incredible and fabulous, with many the like instances of eminent impartiality. He gives fair quarter to the man, but none to the tyrant. To Claudius, a stupid prince, and almost a changeling, who had no judgment, no aversion of his own, but only such as were ensued and managed by others, he allows a share of sense at intervals, allows that he did some reasonable things, gave good advice to the prince of Parthia, and wanted not elegance in his speeches, when his speeches were premeditated. He owns the spirit of sovereignty to be jealous and unsociable, but, as an exception from the rule, mentions the amiable friendship and union between Germanicus and Drusus in the court of Tiberius, though their different interest had rent the whole court into factions. He owns the friendship of Drusus, for the children of Germanicus, though the participation of power and the union of hearts, are seldom compatible. The same fair temper and truth he observes in the conduct and character of Galba, Otho, and even of Nero and Vitellius, and it was his business and design to lay open the iniquity and horrors of the misrule. These are some of the objections made to the writings of Tacitus, and I think, with extreme injustice, his critics are more subtle than he. They are false refiners, who, for the reputation of sagacity, make singular remarks, and serve him as they say he did Tiberius. They pervert and blacken his designs, and are too curious to be equitable. Tacitus, with a masterly discernment, unravels the mysterious conduct of Tiberius. It is from awe of his mother. It is from fear of Germanicus. It is from jealousy of the grandees, and with design to amuse and humour, or to deceive them all, that he rules and acts with such temper and moderation, 
against the bent and pride of his nature, always imperious and tyrannical. But when he had well established himself, when Germanicus was dead, when his mother too was gone, when he had crushed some of the grandees, and terrified all, and especially when he was far from the eyes of Rome, is it not most true that he then gave a loose to all the excesses of vileness and cruelty? Cuncta simul vicie, male diu dissimulata, tandem profundit. It is not Tacitus who says this. Was he not continually mocking and deluding the Senate? First, he would by no means accept the empire. At a time when he was actually in possession, sometimes he was weary of it, and would needs resign at every turn. Before he quitted the city, he was for visiting the provinces, and for this purpose many preparations were made, and high expectations raised. Then, when he had retired to Capriae, he was continually amusing them with his immediate return to Rome, nay, begged one of the consuls to guard him. He carried the deceit so far that he often visited the continent, and the very walls and gardens about Rome, but never once returned to Rome, nor visited the provinces, nor had a thought of resigning. The commonwealth was always in his mouth, even when he was acting the tyrant most. He professed eminent moderation while he was meditating acts of cruelty, and in instances of injustice and rigor, pleaded law and mercy. His malice, in leaving so wicked a successor, appears more from Suetonius than from Tacitus, who allows him to have had some thoughts of appointing another. But the former testifies expressly that Tiberius was wont to foretell what a devouring dragon he reared for the Roman people, and what a phyton or incendiary to the whole earth. Tacitus is vouched by Suetonius in what he says was reported for the motive which determined Augustus to adopt Tiberius, ambitione tractum ut tali successore considerabilitor ipse quandoque fieret. Suetonius in Tiberius C. 21. The same, too, is testified by Dion Cassius. Section 9. Mr. Bale's unjust censure of Tacitus, and how well the latter knew and observed the laws of history. Mr. Bale, in his dictionary, in the article of Tacitus, quotes some passages out of a book entitled Anonymiana, a very foolish book, where Tacitus is criticized as above, and approves those passages. This is the less matter of wonder to me, for that Mr. Bale, with all his immense learning, acuteness, and candor, has a strange and unnatural bias to absolute monarchy, though he had fled from the fury of it, and taken refuge in a free state. Approve this, that great weakness cleaves to the great minds, and who can boast an exemption from prejudices when a spirit so signally disinterested and philosophical as that of Bill was not exempted? He himself says of Tacitus qu'il y a bien à reprendre dans l'affectation de son langage et dans celle de rechercher les motifs secrets des actions et de les retourner vers le criminel. 
that this charge is groundless, I have already proved. Much less to be regarded is the authority of Mr. St. Evermont, in his censure upon Tacitus. His observations are without depth, to say no worse, nor have I found in his works any political observations remarkable for solidity and force. What he has said of the Romans is superficial, and often wrong. Tacitus knew perfectly the laws of history, and blames the passionate and partial accounts given by those who described the same reigns, since those of them which were written during the lives of the princes were falsified through the dread of their tyranny, and, when dead, through detestation of their late cruelties. He had no motive to be partial. Free as he was from affection, free from resentment, he knew that truth uncorrupted was the business of an historian, and that personal affection and hate should have no share in the work. Nec amore quisquam, esine odio dissendus est. Of Galba, Oso, and Vitellius, he says that to him they were known by no mark either of favor or diskindness. The same is true of Augustus, Tiberius, Caligula, Claudius, and Nero. He shrews how the truth was corrupted, first by flattery, then by resentment, and professes to be far from either. I think he is as good as his word. Section 10. An Apology for the Wrong Account by Tacitus, given of the Jews and Christians, and for his disregard of the religion then received. There are other accusations against Tacitus. He has misrepresented the Jews and Christians, and wanted religion. Concerning the Jews, he followed the tradition and account current amongst the Romans. He tells you what different relations there were, and neither adds anything nor misrepresents things maliciously. It was an obscure state, generally enslaved to some greater power, to the Assyrians, Egyptians, Grecians, and then to the Romans, and condemned by all as much as they themselves hated all. They had not common mercy or charity toward the Gentiles, and uncircumcised, and being persuaded that the Almighty loved only themselves, they fancied that he abhorred, and therefore they abhorred, the whole human race besides, so that it was said by Tacitus too truly, Adversus omnes alios hostile odium. They were likewise ever solicitous to hide their mysteries from the eyes of the heathens, and could not blame them, for not knowing what was not to be known. Yet he was not ill-informed in some instances, especially in their spiritual notions of the deity, with their aversion to images and to the adoration of the emperors. Nulla simulacra urbibus suis, non regibus aec adulatio, non caesaribus honor. Of the gospel, it is manifest that he knew nothing. He could not else have made so ugly a picture of those who professed it. For it is not likely that the Christians were yet so degenerated as to disgrace the Christian religion. Tacitus wanted an opportunity to be better informed. 
that religion, as it began, among the lower sort of people, had not probably hitherto gained many proselytes of name and quality to countenance and recommended to men of figure. Tacitus considered it like a statesman, as a new sect inconsistent with the laws of Rome, and threatening civil tumults and innovations. It is probable, too, that he had heard and credited the calumnies then usually thrown upon the manners and meetings of that people. Nor, after the best instruction, could he have become a believer without the illumination of the spirit, which, it is plain, was withheld from him, and, without a change of heart, it was impossible for him to conceive the resurrection of the dead and the crucifixion of the Son of God yet he does them the justice to vindicate them from the obloquy of Nero, and exposes the barbarity of their treatment by that tyrant. For his disregarding the religion then received, when I consider what sorts of absurdities the pagans held for religion, I cannot so much blame him. It was a worship paid to deities altogether frantic and impure, by sacrifices and follies ridiculous and vain, and both their worship and their gods were invented by the cunning or delusion of men. It consisted in no purification of the heart, nor amendment of morals, the things which men and societies require, but in sounds, gesticulation, and the blood of beasts, not in truth and sense, in benevolence and rectitude of mind, but in lying oracles, unaccountable mysteries, and raving imagination, sometimes in professed acts of lewdness, often in those of fury and madness, always in such as were foreign from real virtue, and the restraining of the passions, Public calamities were never thought to be brought down by public depravity and vice, nor to be averted or removed by public reformation. The gods were not offended, but by the omission or wrong performance of some ceremony or grimace, and by grimace and ceremony they were to be appeased. And when the deities were deemed to be endowed with the peevishness and caprices of children and apes, or the frenzy of lunatics, what man of sense could reverence them or believe in them? It would not have redounded to the reputation of his sense if he had. Where religion is pure superstition, and the belief of it absolutely groundless and blind, where its rites are fanciful, foolish, and unmanly, as the religion and gods and worship of the pagans were, it would have been a revolt from common reason to have had any such religion. We know how freely Cicero deals with their gods. It is true that these great men of Rome, who either had no notion of religion, or one quite opposite to that publicly received and practised, regarded it as far as it was interwoven with the constitution of the state, and subservient to the ends of government. Yet they suffered their poets, especially the dramatic poets, 
to treat their gods with severe jest and satire. They seemed to be of Tiberius's mind. Deorum in iudeas dies curae, that is, to leave to the gods the avenging of indignities done to the gods. Men were punished for their libelling particulars, people of condition, and especially magistrates, but to ridicule and lampoon the deities, Jupiter himself, even upon the stage, was a matter of impunity and diversion. Their religion, therefore, consisting in rituals, a man might be very religious with a very debauched and libertine spirit. Cultor deorum bacchus in frequens is a complaint made by Horace himself, but does not seem to infer much heavenly mindness, nor a departure from his impure pleasures. One might, on the contrary, be exactly good and just, nay, the pattern of virtue, and the public patriot, without any tincture of their religion. Such was Cato the censor, such Epicurus, and such was Tacitus. He thought that either there was no providence, for his mind wavered between the doctrine of necessity and that of chance, or such a providence as he could have well spared. Non esse curae, dei nostram, esse ulsionem. But this bold reproach upon the deities, he uttered after his heart, zealous for the good of his country, had been heated by a terrible detail of her calamities, nor indeed, according to the ideas received from these odd beings, so easily humoured and provoked, could one say much good of them, or expect it from them. In the reign of Nero, he enumerates many presages, from which, as from signals divinely sent, great changes for the better were inferred, but all vanished into air and disappointment. Prodiga crebra e inrita intercessere, etc. Hence he argues that all these omens happened so apparently without any direction or interposition of the gods, that, for many years after, Nero rioted in power and wickedness. Whatever were the speculations of our author about religion, his morality is strong and pure, full of benevolence to human society, full of every generous passion and every noble principle. A terrible rebuke to iniquity, vice and baseness, in all stations and shapes, and one continued lesson of wisdom and virtue. These are the excellencies which in civil life recommend books and men. These the excellencies which recommend Tacitus, excellencies which he has carried as high as the utmost efforts of human genius could carry then. Mr. Bale says, Ces annales et son histoire sont quelque chose d'admirable, et l'un des plus grands efforts de l'esprit humain, soit que l'on y considère la singularité du style, soit que l'on s'y attache à la beauté de ses pensées, et à cet heureux pinceau avec lequel il a su peindre les déguisements et les fourberies des politiques, et le faible des passions. Nor does he show more abilities than probity, as astonishing as his abilities were, and, having so much, what more did he want for his design? or, what's more, 
could we wish in him? Which is the better instructor? He who has store of state, but wants virtue? And abounds not in good sense? Or he who wants the first, but abounds in knowledge and the rules of righteousness? It is for this we consult Tacitus, not for his theological speculations. How do his metaphysical notions impede his excellencies as an historian and politician, or his mistakes in one thing lessen his discernment and veracity in another? According to the accounts of our best travellers concerning China, the Mandarins, who are the nobility of the country, the learned, and such as hold the magistracy, have no religion at all. Their governing principle is public spirit, their principal study, the good of the state, and they are noted for politeness and virtue. The bonzes, or priests, on the contrary, pretend to extraordinary devotion, but are vicious, sordid, base, and void of every virtue, private or public. Here is an instance of a monarchy the most thriving of any upon earth, or that ever was upon earth an empire that contains more people than half the rest of the globe, these people full of industry and arts, yet administered by men who are of no particular religion or sect, but are guided by the natural lights of reason and morality, nor knows it a greater blot and disgrace than the vile lives of its priests and religions. Again this instance sets another, that of the Pope's dominions, the centre of the Romish religions, where holy men sway all things, and have engrossed all things, where tortures and flames keep out infidels and heretics, and every man who thinks awry, and where the champions for devotion, so-called, protect the church, and feed themselves. Now where but here, should one look for the marks of opulence, ease, and plenty, and public happiness, if, by an administration of priests and devotees, public happiness were advanced. But behold a different and melancholy scene. Countries fertile, but desolate, the people ignorant, idle, and starving, and all the marks and weight of misery. Does not this merit reflection, that a church, blended and debauched with excessive wealth and power, is worse, a thousand times worse than none, and that the mere light of nature and reason is many degrees more conductive to the temporal welfare of humankind than a religion or church which is purely lucrative and selfish. Where the Romish church, or any other church that teaches pains and penalties, any that exalts ecclesiastics into power, and leaves them the sword, or wields it for them. Once established in China, there would in a little time be an end of their incredible numbers, and it would soon feel the cruel curse. Attending the change, in this sentiment I am vouched by that polite writer and candid prelate, Dr. Tillotson. Better it were, says he, there were no revealed religion, and that human nature were left to conduct of its own principles and inclinations, 
which are much more mild and merciful, much more for the peace and happiness of human society, than to be acted by a religion that inspires men with so wild a fury, and prompts them to commit such outrages. Sermons, Volume 1, page 206. Make another comparison between two particulars, a heathen guided by reason, and a Christian by passion and false zeal. Between Tacitus and St. Jerome, behold the politeness, candor, eternal truth, and good sense in the one. Mark the rashness and enthusiasm, the fierceness and falsehood of the other. So much stronger were the passions and insincerity of this great saint than the impressions of the Christian religion, which is all meekness and candor. Nay, he often makes it a steel for his fury, forgeries, and implacable vengeance. I meddle not with his strange maxims, some foolish, some mad, some impracticable, and others turbulent and seditious. In Tacitus you have the good sense and breeding of a gentleman. In the saint, the rage and dreams of a monk. Does the religion of the latter recommend his reveries and bitter spirit, or the want of it in Tacitus weaken the shining truths that are in him? When the writer relates facts, or reasons from principles, his good sense and veracity only are to be regarded, and we have no more to do with his speculations or mistakes in other matters than with his person or complexion. Pliny and Aristotle are reckoned atheists. But what is this to their fine parts and learning? With small spirits and bigots everything that is noble and free is atheism and blasphemy. The littleness and sourness of their own hearts is the measure of all things. Nerva, Trajan, and Marcus Aurelius were heathen princes, but they had virtue and benevolence, and their administration was righteous. What more did their subjects want from them? Justinian, Constantius, John Basilovitz, John Gallias, and Louis the Eleventh were Christian princes, and men pretending to high devotion, some of them great contenders for orthodoxy, some great builders of churches, but all barbarous and consuming tyrants. What were the people or themselves the better for their religion, without good nature and probity? Nay, they made religion one of the principal machines for tyranny, as religion in a tyrant or impostor is little else but an impious bargain and composition with God for abusing men. Such, in truth, is the situation of things below, such the frame and foible of men, that it depends, in a great measure, upon civil government, where the religion shall in this world do good or harm. It is a country filled with oppression, the happier for being filled too with churches and priests, as were Greece and Italy by Justinian, 
or can a country that abounds in virtue and happiness and good laws want any more to all the purposes of social life like lacedaemon and rome in their best ages let us praise all who have true religion full of mercy and void of bigotry but let us not condemn such as for want of the same lights and revelation which we have been blessed with are without any forms of religion virtuous and wise certainly worse much worse than none is that religion which inspires pride bigotry and fierceness and hath not charity for all men to conclude this head i shall here subjoin what i have said elsewhere to the like purpose that black is not white and that two and two make four is as true out of the mouth of an atheist as out of the mouth of an apostle a penny given by an atheist to a beggar is better alms than a halfpenny given by a believer and the good sense of an atheist is preferable to the mistakes of a good christian in short whatever reputed atheists do well or speak truly is more to be imitated and credited than what the greatest believers do wickedly or say falsely even in the business of bearing testimony or making a report in which cases the credit or reputation of the witness gives some weight or none to what he says more regard is to be had to the world of an unbeliever who has no interest on either side than to the word of a believer who has neither are the good or bad actions of an atheist worse with respect to the world at least for his being one though the sin of a saint is more sinful than that of a pagan it is the greatest folly to think that any man's crimes are the less for him who commits them or that truth is less or more truth for the ill or good name of him who speaks it section eleven the foolish censure of boccalini and others upon tacitus the censure passed upon tacitus by boccalini and some of the other commentators as if he maliciously taught lessons of tyranny is so senseless and absurd that it merits no notice much less consultation as well may they say that luther and father paul display the encroachments and frauds of the church of rome on purpose to teach that or other churches how to oppress and deceive or that livy as great a republican as ever lived exposed the usurpations and tyranny of tarquin in order to instruct usurpers to support themselves and extinguish public liberty tacitus represents tyrants as odious to all men and even to themselves but what answer could one give to a man who should advance that grotius wrote his book in the truth of christianity with a view to promote and confirm paganism section twelve of the several commentators and translators of tacitus it were almost endless to mention all who have written upon tacitus and their success numbers have done it many as critics some politically 
and several of the former with sufficiency and applause, such as Lipsius, Heinz Hemius, Old Gornovius, and Riccius. From the edition published by this last, I have made my translation. The text is very correct, and his notes are judicious and good. Of all those who have commented upon his politics, I can commend but very few. I mean such as I have seen. Many of them are worse than indifferent. Tedious compilations of commonplaces, or heavy paraphrases upon the original, where its vigor is lost in superfluous explications, and the lively thoughts of Tacitus converted into lifeless maxims, frequently wrong converted, frequently trifling and afflicted. Often, such discoveries as are oblivious to every peasant or child, or puffy declamations, tedious, labored, and uninstructive. Of one or the other sort are the commentaries of Boccalini, Annibal Scotti, Forstnerus, Schildus, and diverse others. Mr. Amelot de la Houssay has made a large collection of political observations upon Tacitus, as far as the thirteen annal inclusive, some of them pertinent and useful, but many of them insipid, and little worth. The very first which he makes is flat and poor. Dès que la royauté commence à dégénérer en tyrannie, le peuple aspire à la liberté. Little better is this. Quand un prince commence à devenir infirme ou cassé, tout le monde tourne les yeux vers le soleil levant, c'est-à-dire vers son successeur. Or this, les refus du prince doivent être assaisonnés de douceur et de courtoisie. Or this, ceux-mêmes qui ont renoncé à leur honneur et qui font gloire de leur scélératesse s'offensent d'être appelés traîtres. Or this, un bon général ne doit jamais hasarder une bataille qu'il n'ait mis bon ordre partout. This too, il n'y a rien dont un favori ou un premier ministre doivent se mettre plus en peine que de bien connaître l'humeur de son prince. This too. Un prince dépouillé de ses états ne reste pas volontiers entre les mains de celui qui en est emparé. All this is trite, void, of force and instruction. The Spanish translation by Don Alamos de Barrientos is accompanied by numerous annotations, by him styled aphorismos, which are as indifferent and impotent as the translation itself is good and strong. His observation upon Cuncta discordis civilibus fessa nomini principis sub imperium assepit is Quando alguno se viniere a hacer señor de una grande y poderosa cividad libre, lo más ordinario será después de una larga guerra civil. The opportunity for any one to become master of a great and powerful free city is most commonly at the end of a great civil war. Tacitus says that Augustus left the first lords of the Senate, his heirs, in the third degree, though most of them were hated by him. Plerosque invisos sibi, seliactantia gloriaque ad posteros, Don Alamos observes upon this, El principe muchas veces hace honra a las personas que aborrece para ganar fama de modestia y sufrimiento. A prince often confers honors on those he hates. 
purely for the reputation of a moderation and temper. Tacitus says of Germanicus, Anxus occultis in se patrui avieque odiis quorum causae acriores quia inique. El hombre inocente y bueno, says Don Alamos by way of annotation, de ninguna cosa recibe tanta congoxa como de los secretos aborrecimientos que sabe le tienen su parientos sin merecelero. A worthy and innocent man feels so much anguish from nothing as from the secret hate which he knows his parents bear him without deserving it. Of small value are such reflections, and small thought they cost to produce them. The less is the wonder that Don Alamos has vented such a myriad. Canini, an Italian, has, however, translated them into his own language, with high encomiums, and published them with the Italian translation of Politi, a translation which reads well, but hampers the thoughts of Tacitus, and, from an affectation to be as concise as the original, loses much of its weight and spirit. Don Alamos, on the contrary, opens the sentiments of Tacitus fully, often overfully, by supplemental parentheses, that are sometimes perfectly needless, and always mar and embarrass the reading. These are the only Spanish and Italian versions which I have seen of Tacitus. There are two more of the former, by Suyero and Coloma, both well esteemed, and as many more Italian by Dati and Davazzanti, not at all commended. Of French translations there are five or six, all except two, good for little, some of them good for nothing. These two are by Mr. Darlet de Chanvalon, who has done the whole, Mr. Amelot de la Houssaye, who has only gone as far as the thirteenth annal. The former is vigorous and just, like that of a man of sense and observation. Nor has the latter any advantage over him, save that his French is more modern, if that be any. Ablancourt is likewise one of the French translators of Tacitus, a man of name and of a flowing style. But if he has abused other authors as he has abused and transformed Tacitus, it is fit they were all done over again. There is some life in him, and harmony, but no justness nor strength. All the force and fine ideas of Tacitus are lost in Ablancourt. Section 13. A conjecture concerning the modern languages, more largely concerning the English. Of the French tongue itself I may venture to say, after better judges than myself, that, from a laxness and effeminacy essential to it, it cannot naturalize the strong expressions of the ancients, without spreading and weakening them considerably. It has a number of relatives, particles, and monosyllables that return incessantly and flatten the sense and tire the ear. The English language has indeed many words more harsh than the French, but it has likewise many more spirituous and sounding and though it be also loaded with relatives, particles, and words of one syllable, yet I think not to the same degree, nor do those we have return so often, and we can frequently drop the particles, 
and leave them to be understood, as well as the relatives. In this respect, the Latins had an advantage over the Greeks, as those two languages have over every other that is now in the world, or perhaps ever was. We are infinitely behind them in significancy and sound, and, with all our adventitious words and refinements, are still crude and gothic to them. Nearest in language to the ancients come the Spaniards and Italians, though still far behind. Yet they stand over the heads of the English and French, and walk while we creep. The Spanish is the more sonorous and lofty, the Italian the more sweet and gliding. Both excel in harmony, numerosity, and the pomp of words. The Italians seem to have spoiled their tongue by wild hyperboles and phrases of mere sound and compliment, whether it be from the turn of the nation to love and music, whether it be from the legends of their saints and their extravagant panegyrics upon them, or from their slavery to churchmen, or the severity of their government, or from what other cause I do not pretend to determine. The French profess to have greatly refined their tongue, and it is indeed brought to be exceedingly glib and perspicuous. But whether the refiners have not pared away its strength to make it more shapely and regular has been doubted. Some refinements we also have made in ours, perhaps by imitating the French, though I hope we have better preserved its force. Easy writing has been studied to affectation, a sort of writing which, where the thoughts are not close, the scent strong, and the phrase genteel, is of all others the most contemptible. Such were the productions of Sir Roger Lestrange, not fit to be read by any who have taste or good breeding. They are full of technical terms, of phrases picked up in the street from apprentices and porters, and nothing can be more low and nauseous. His sentences, besides their grossness, are lively of nothing, which can never be translated, a sure way to try language, and will hardly bear repetition. Between hawk and buzzard, clawed him with kindness, alert and frisky, guzzling down tipple, would not keep touch, a queer putt, lay cursed hard upon their gizzard, cram his gut, conceited nutty. Old chuff, and the like, are some of Riser's choice flowers. Yet this man was reckoned a master, nay, a reformer of the English language, a man who writ no language, nor does it appear that he understood any, witness his miserable translations of Cicero's offices and Josephus. That of the latter is a version full of mistakes, wretched and low, from an easy and polite one of M. Dandilly. Sir Roger is one amongst the several hands who attempted Tacitus, and the third book of the history is said to be done by him. He knew not a word of it, but what he has taken from Sir Henry Savile, and him he had wretchedly perverted and mangled. Out of the wise and grave mouth of Tacitus he brings 
such quaint stuff as this. To cast the point upon that issue, sneaking departure of Vitellius, at the rate of a man, at his wit's end, sottish multitude never went beyond bawling, an emperor's lugged out of his hole, the sexton of the capital, the government dropped into a Vespasian's mouth, not cut out of a soldier, went not a sneaking way to work, balance in the interim with his dissolute train of capons, into the senseless cant-word Sir Roger elegantly changes that of Enux used by Sir H. Seville, for I dare he neither saw nor knew the original, Agmines Pandonum, the emperor guzzling and gormandizing like a beast. Such jargon is hardly good enough for a puppet show. Sir Roger had a genius for buffonry and a rabble, and higher he never went. His style and his thoughts are too vulgar for a sensible artificer. To put his books into the hands of youth or boys, for whom chiefly Aesop, by him burlesque, was designed, is to vitiate their taste, and to give them a poor low turn of thinking, not to mention the vile and slavish principles of the man. He has not only turned Aesop's plain beasts from the simplicity of nature into jesters and bassoons, but out of the mouth of animal inured to the boundless freedom of air and deserts, he has drawn doctrines of servitude and a deference of tyranny. The taste and style of the court is always the standard of the public. At the Restoration, a time of great festivity and joy, the formal and forbidding gravity of the preceding times became a fashionable topic of ridicule. A manner different and opposite was introduced. Jest and vagary were encouraged, and the king himself delighted in drollery and low humor. Hence the language became replete with ludicrous phrases. Archness and Ken grew diverting. The writings of witlings passed for wit, and if they were severe upon the sectaries, as the fashion was, they pleased the court. By this means, Lestrange got his character. It is very true that there appeared at the same time men of just wit and polite style, but it cannot be denied, but that the other manner was prevalent. The greatest wits sometimes fell into it. The humor ended, not with that reign, nor the next, but was continued after the revolution by Lestrange, Tom Brown, and other delighters in low jests. Their imitators and such whittlings have contributed considerably to the bouch our tongue. If we go so high as Queen Elizabeth's time, we shall find that a good style began then to be used, agreeably to the good sense of that princess and her court, and we have the language of that age in Sir Walter Raleigh, whose genius was too just and strong to go into the miserable pedantry of the next reign. Many of the productions then, and particularly the royal productions, are wretched beyond measure. I wish the honor and politics of those days had been better. Nor could so considerable a man as Sir Francis Bacon escape the infection. The next prince, affected 
a high and rigid gravity, and the pomp and solemnity of style became common. Yet the language began to recover, when the cant and enthusiasm ensuing gave it a new turn, extremely insipid and offensive. But between the reign of King James and the Restoration, several writers appeared eminently happy in their style. Such particularly was Mr. Chillingworth, whose language is flowing, and free as his own candid spirit. The same character is due to the excellent Lord Falkland, and Mr. Hills of Eton. Mr. Hope's English is beautiful almost, if not altogether beyond example. Nothing can be finer than his way of expressing his thoughts. His style is as singularly good, charming, and clean as many of his principles are dangerous and false. Under this character of his style, I do not comprise his translation of Thucydides, as it does not, however, just it be, resemble his other works. Hence, I am inclinable to believe what I have heard, that it was done by some of his disciples, and by him revised, yet it far excels most of our translations. Milton's English prose is harsh and uncouth, though vigorous and expressive. The style of Selden and Hammond is rugged and perplexed. Section 14. A conjecture concerning the present state of the English tongue, with an account of the present work. Of the character of writing in our own tongue, where I give my opinion, I should be apt to say that in general it comes too near to talking, a method which will hardly make it delightful or lasting. No words upon paper will have the same effect as words accompanied with a voice, looks, and action. Hence, the thoughts and language should be so far raised as to supply the want of those advantages. But indeed, this is impossible, and therefore there is the greater cause for heightening the style. Now, because laboured periods are offensive, and flat ones are insipid, the excellency lies between pomp and negligence. Let it be as easy as you please, but let it be strong. Two advantages that are very compatible, and often found in the same writer. Livy is remarkable for both. It is his eloquency and ornaments which have preserved him in such esteem, as much as his matter and good sense. The late Lord Shaftesbury, though he has been perhaps too anxious and affected in forming his phrase to easiness and fluency, has yet had good success, since it is manifest that his soft alluring style has multiplied his readers and helped powerfully to recommend his works. Dr. Burnett, of the Charter House, wrote with great eloquence and majesty, yet easy and unaffected. Dr. Tillotson's style is plain and pleasant, enlivened, too, with fine images and strong sense. Yet many, while they strove to imitate him, have written very poorly. This has happened to some of our divines, who, studying his manner, but wanting his genius, 
have utterly a flow of words, which sound not ill, but lack spirit and matter. I have looked over whole pages of Bishop Blackall's sermons, without finding anything which offended the ear, or pleased the imagination, or informed the understanding. I cannot help mentioning another writer, who has gained great reputation for style, without deserving any. I mean Dr. Spratt, Bishop of Rochester. His expression is languishing and insipid, full of false pomp, full of affectation. He is always aiming at harmony and wit, but succeeds ill, for his manner is starched and pedantic. With much greater justice has the style of Dr. Atterbury, his successor, been admired. Our tongue is naturally cold, and the less force our words have, the more they must be multiplied. This multiplying of words is tedious. Hence, the remedy is as bad as the disease. The Latin phrases, on the contrary, are short and lively, and a few words convey many images. These difficulties, with many others, I found in this translation very sensibly. I wanted new words, but have rarely coined any, as the creating of words is generally thought affected in vain. Yet I have sometimes ventured upon a new phrase, and a way of my own, upon drawing the English idiom as near as possible to that of the Latin, and to the genius of my author, by leaving the beaten road, dropping particles, transposing words, and sometimes beginning a sentence where it is usual to end it. I have studied to imitate the spirit, eloquence, and turns of Tacitus, as far as I could, assisted by a language weak in its sounds, and loose in its contexture. This manner of writing, I own, would be strange and even ridiculous in plain and familiar subjects, but where the subject is high and sullen, there must be a conformity of style. In the political discourses following, I have likewise taken a method of my own, in reasoning largely upon topics which to me seemed of the most moment to this free nation, and giving an idea of the politics of the Caesars, of the vis artis e instrumenta regni, as they are called by Tacitus, I have vindicated the principles of civil liberty. I have examined the defences made for Caesar and Augustus. I have displayed the genius of these usurpers, the temper and debasement of the people, with the conduct and tyranny of their successors, to the end of the annals. In my translation of the history, I have done the same. I have little troubled myself with the strife and guesses of commentators and various readings. I have chosen the best editions, and where the meaning was dubious, taken the most probable, for, after all, there is a good deal of guesswork and uncertainty, difficulties not peculiar to Tacitus. I was persuaded to this undertaking several years ago by a friend of mine, a gentleman of letters in the city, for then I had never seen the English translation, and knew not but it was a good one. 
Mr. Trenchard approved the design with his usual zeal for everything which favoured public liberty. My Lord Carteret, who understands Tacitus perfectly, and admires him, was pleased to thank me not unfit for it, and gave me many just lights about the manner of doing it, that particularly of allowing myself scope and freedom, without which I am satisfied every translation must be pedantic and cold. A translation ought to read like an original. The Duke of Argyll espoused it generously, with that frankness which is natural to him, agreeably to his knowledge and the taste of polite learning, and to his sincere love of liberty. So did my Lord Townshend. Sir Robert Walpole encouraged me in the pursuit of it in a manner eminently to my credit, and to many gentlemen of my acquaintance I am much obliged upon this occasion. I own I have been long about this translation. That it was so is to be ascribed not so much to idleness as to diffidence. It was done a long while before I put it to the press. After all my care and many revises, I continued apprehensive that much fault might be found, and many objections made a misfortune which I still doubt I shall not be able to escape, and wish I may not deserve. I therefore rely more on the candor of my readers than on my own sufficiency. Those of them who understand Tacitus in the original will easily make allowances for the difficulty of making him speak in any other language. I have been chiefly careful not to mistake the sentiments of my author about human nature and government, and I will venture to say that no man who has not accustomed himself to think upon these two subjects can ever make tolerable sense of Tacitus. Let him be as learned in other things as he will. For the same reason, no man that is merely learned can ever be pleased with a free translation, however faithful and just, for his chief attachment will ever be to words and criticism. Who had more learning than Sir H. Savile? Tis plain he abounded beyond most men. But I suppose learning was his chief accomplishment, and thence his translation is a very poor one. The fault cannot be ascribed to the time, for that time the polite world wrote and spoke well, and if Sir Walter Raleigh had then translated it, nobody, I believe, would have ever attempted to mend it. End of Discourse 2 Part 2